Hi there. Thank you for joining us on the Redeemer Church Podcast. Here at Redeemer, we exist to see Christ exalted in our church, community, and world. It is our mission to lead people into the presence of God, devotion to His Word, authentic fellowship with others, and discovering their ministry. We hope that this podcast is just one of the ways you connect to God's presence this week. Let's check out this week's message. Well, Merry Advent. Happy Advent. Merry Christmas. It's good to see you all. This week, we are starting our Advent series called Good News. Uh, The title of this series comes straight from Luke's account of Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 2.10. We read this. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. So the good news that Luke is talking about is that because of Jesus, we can have hope, peace, love, and joy. And those are going to be the themes dominating our conversation for the season of Advent. So that's kind of a a little foreshadow of the things to come, so we we don't want to miss any of those types of conversations. Uh, Now, if the concept of Advent is new to you, I I want to explain a little bit about what this season is about. The word Advent means arrival, and the Advent season is all about anticipating the arrival of Jesus. Jesus' birth was prophesied about all the way back in the prophet Isaiah. And there Isaiah said this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And later he goes on to say this, For to us a child is born, to us a child is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Isaiah was writing these words to an Israel that was conquered and exiled. An Israel that would have been in shock and awe at its current circumstances, an Israel that would have been in a major theological crisis. And Isaiah's message, therefore, created in them great anticipation. But to have anticipation, you must first have hope. So this morning is going to be all about hope. Our conversation is going to center around the theme of hope. Hope is why we celebrate Christ's first arrival and eagerly anticipate his second. But what is hope? Webster's Dictionary defines hope this way. To cherish a desire with anticipation. To desire with expectation of obtainment or fulfillment. To hope for something We have to believe that what we are hoping for can actually happen. Otherwise, it's not even hope. It's not that we wouldn't hope for it. It means that hope itself cannot exist if we don't reasonably believe what we're putting our hopes in can happen. I don't know about you, but I try to make it a habit to not get really excited about things 
that are never going to come to pass because I don't like to be disappointed. For instance, I have always had a love for Christmas. Perhaps that's because I have wonderful parents who put a lot of effort into making the Christmas season very special for our family. So when I was little, I couldn't wait for Christmas morning. I had all of this expectation and anticipation of what I would get for my Christmas gift. I didn't know what it would be, but I certainly knew that it was going to be something special. I knew that my parents would do something special for me. And so the Christmas season filled my heart with anticipation and with joy, but perhaps most importantly, it filled my heart with hope. Because hope is what enables us to have joy. However, I would not have hoped for Christmas morning in such a way as a child if my parents didn't do anything to make it special. Because we don't place our hope in things we know can't come true. In this way, hope and trust are intertwined. They're connected. In fact, pastor and author Timothy Keller said this in one of his sermons about hope. You and I are unavoidably and irreducibly hope-based creatures. How we live now is controlled by what we think will happen later by our understanding of our future state. That's a mouthful. I'm going to say that again so it can sink in. You and I are unavoidably and irreducibly hope-based creatures. How we live now is controlled by what we think will happen later by our understanding of our future state. And then he offered this really clever illustration of what he was talking about to kind of help land this point. And he said, imagine two people being hired for the same job. And their whole job is to do this. Take part A, attach it to part B. Eight hours a day, five days a week. Attach part A to part B. The only difference is that the first employee is told for a year's worth of work, that person will receive $10,000. The second employee, however, for a year's worth of work, will receive $1 million. The only difference between their two jobs. Now, imagine halfway through the year, these two having a conversation despite not knowing what their salaries are. I can imagine employee A saying things like, can you believe this is all that's expected of me? Eight hours a day, over and over and over again, attach part A to part B. I'm worth more than this. I'm capable of more than this. I can't believe that this is the only type of stuff that we have to do. And I can imagine employee B responding with something like, well, it's not so bad, right? It's a clean work environment. Hours are stable. Uh, We know that what we're doing, who knows if it matters or, or not, but this really, things could be worse. Well, what's the difference between employee A and employee B? Salary, but more than salary, hope. There is hope of what they are going to get, an expectation of what they're going to have. So what we experience in life, what our expectations are, how we're wired, what we're driving after, all has to do with hope. What we believe about the future drives our actions, attitudes, and behaviors. Let me put that a little bit more strongly. 
What we trust about the future drives our actions, attitudes, and behaviors. So if we don't have a strong hope in the future after this life, then we will certainly be trying to get everything we can out of our physical life. Out of the amount of time that we are on this earth, we will naturally begin to want to have the most of whatever brings us joy. Whatever that thing is, whatever we experience some sort of fleeting happiness by, we'll want to want more. More money, more power, more things, more experiences. Whatever we trust will bring us happiness. We want more of. The haunting truth is that if we don't die while pursuing whatever that thing is, whatever that thing that we trust will bring us happiness, one day we're going to wake up miserable because those things failed to make us happy. We can obtain all of the thing that we think will make us happy. We can have mounds of it. It can be in excess. We can even change what that thing is and accumulate another thing, whether that's vacations or money or power or influence. We can accumulate all of those things, have an abundance, and then we will still come to realize that we are not happy. King Solomon, often regarded as the wisest man to have ever lived, warned us that this was the case. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he said this, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all of my wisdom, in all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Can you imagine? Solomon, wise beyond anyone that anyone's ever seen, wealth Beyond what our minds can imagine, he had over 700 wives, 300 concubines. He had the most power. He was the ruler of the world's strongest nation at the time. He literally had everything that the world told him was important or could bring him happiness. And what does he call all of it? Meaningless. A chasing after the wind. None of it made him happy. The hope of acquiring more of these things did not bring about satisfaction or joy or anticipation. Instead, what it conjured up in Solomon was this sense of hopelessness. It's a depressing book, 
right? Have you ever read through Ecclesiastes? There doesn't feel like there's necessarily a lot of hope going on. Solomon is talking, I've experienced everything I can get my hands on. And it's all a chasing after the wind. Hopelessness. Hopelessness brings about darkness. And darkness brings about destruction. And destruction brings about death. Let's go back to a happier thought for a moment, okay? Will you journey with me out of this? As I said, Advent, the season leading to Christmas, has always been my favorite season of the year. But when I was a kid, I did what many of us do as adults. I placed my hope in the gifts of Christmas. I'd be so excited for Christmas Day to arrive. I'd open my presents and play with some amazing toys, and I'd be happy for like a day or two. Then it'd be all over. Parents in the room, you know that this is the reality of spending all of this time, all of this money, all of this energy on these Christmas presents. We spend all of this money, we get to see this joy and wrap our child's face for a moment, And then Boxing Day comes, all of the presents get put back into uh, whatever boxes or they get left on the floor for us to step on. Uh, And then all the decorations go away and it's like nothing ever happened. Life continues on. So I would be, as a child, happy for like a day or two. What I could have done, however, is instead of putting my hopes In the gifts, I could have been putting my hope in the gift givers. Then instead of having hope for a short season uh, that would be gone in an instant, I would have a hope that would renew every morning in the relationship that I had with my parents. We do that with God. God blesses us with some sort of great gift which brings us this fleeting moment of happiness, and then we misguidingly put our hope in that gift. We wire our whole lives around whatever gift it was that God gave us, whether that's our finances or the amazing house that we have or the great cars that we drive or the power and influence of our job, whatever that thing is, whatever that great gift that God set down in our lap is, and then we start chasing after that gift because we want more. We're like a child at Christmas that quickly becomes dissatisfied with the gift and wants more to stay kind of on this emotional high that we call happiness. So we we misguidedly place our hope in the gift rather than the gift giver. We start pursuing more of that gift, all in hopes that the gift will bring us happiness, that the gift will bring us joy. And then we're shocked when the gift can't deliver. After all, it was just a gift. C.S. Lewis described something similar in Mere Christianity. He said this, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger while there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim while there's such a thing as water. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy my desire, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a copy or echo 
or mirage. What C.S. Lewis is describing or talking about here is this having exchanged our hope or placed our hope in the gift rather than the gift giver. So as we're experiencing the sense of hopelessness of chasing after whatever it is that we thought we were going to, ha- to make us happy, even if we accumulated a ton of it, what Lewis is saying is that that gift, it's not all hopeless. It's not all for nothing. He's saying the gift was never meant to actually bring you any type of real fulfillment. It was to awaken a hope. It was to awaken something inside of you. God gave you the gift to awaken you to a hope and an expectation, not of the gift, but of the gift giver. That because we hope for something, because we have that wired in our being, just because other things we've tried in the past, our wealth, our power, our possessions, whatever those things are, and they did not bring us happiness, Lewis is saying, don't throw it all away. It doesn't mean that you're hopeless. It means that those things point you to a greater thing, a relationship with our creator. So we must shift our hope from the gifts to the gift giver. Looking back to my childhood, the gift that was really offered to me year after year by my parents was a deep relationship with them. Through their gifts, they were earning my trust. I knew I could put my hope in my relationship with them. They would care for me. They would protect me. They would love me. The types of gifts God offers us at Christmas is this type of gift. Emmanuel, God with us. Through Jesus, God offers us a relationship with himself. He blesses us with gifts to awaken our senses to him. His gifts awaken our hope. They awaken the sense of expectation. They awaken the sense of joy. And here's the good news of Advent. Because of Jesus' birth, there is a hope for ruined humanity a hope of forgiveness, a hope of peace with God, and a hope of future glory, a hope of forgiveness. If we're honest with ourselves, we all know that we make mistakes. Some of these mistakes are great, they're huge. Some of them are small and we'll never think about them again. Others of these mistakes haunt us for years. Guilt isn't satisfied with making us depressed. In fact, it wants to suck the very soul from our chests. It wants to give us an identity of worthlessness. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've experienced the depths of what guilt can do and what it's, what it's there for, what it's wired for. The good news is that Advent gives us hope. The birth of Jesus signaled the end for guilt because Jesus lived a perfect life yet took on himself the penalty of our sin. Part of the good news of Advent is that we don't have to feel guilt over our past mistakes if we ask Jesus to forgive us. In fact, Paul tells us this in Romans 8, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. 
This means that we're not just forgiven for our past, but that our past has been redeemed. There's purpose in our past because God intends to use our past for his glory. Amen? There's purpose in our past because God intends to use it for his glory. That means he has wired it in such a way that we can have hope for our past. But there's also hope of peace with God, which is far more important than we might even think. Much of our present anxiety, frustration, and pain stems from being at war with God. We were created for relationship with God, but that relationship with God requires a submission to his will, a laying down of our will and a picking up of his, a surrendering of our desires and a picking up of God's desires. Perhaps the most surprising thing of the surrender is that in laying our desires for God's desires, we experience a freedom that we would have never have known otherwise. God's will is not a restrictive will. It enables us to be the very people that we were created to be. However, we were unable to surrender on our own. We're unable on our own, if we're left on our current trajectory, if God would just leave us alone, then what we would always do is to continue to pursue the gifts that he's given us rather than the gift giver. Whatever it is that we valued so much, whatever it is that we believe will bring us this instantaneous happiness, we're wired to pursue those things with everything that we had because of our sinful nature. And because of that, we're wired to war against God himself with everything that we are and everything we have. And we're incapable of raising the white flag of surrender without his help. The good news of Advent is that Christ ends the war on our behalf so that we can raise our white flag and surrender the war against God. That means that we are enabled because of Christ to enjoy a peace with God. Not just peace with God, but a deep, everlasting relationship with the person who created us. That is the hope of our present and a freedom that we would have never have known otherwise. Finally, we have a hope of future glory. Life is hard. The struggle is real. And that's because we live in a time between times. What I mean is that Christ has come and initiated his kingdom, but he still must come back to fully consummate it. In other words, sin is still a reality, as is pain, as is loss, as is disappointment. However, Jesus promised that that would not always be so. When Jesus ascended into heaven with his disciples watching in awe, an angel had this to say to the disciples in Acts 1. This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. And this is what John promises us in Revelation chapter 21. 
When he returns, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Friends, this is the good news of Advent, that Christ has come, that there can be hope for our present because there is hope for our future, that there will be a day where all of this pain is over, all of the suffering, all of the disappointment, all of the heartbreak of loss, that every good, ungood thing will become undone. That is the hope that Advent brings to us that Jesus has come and that he will come again. And we wait in eager anticipation for his return. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of you that you would take on human flesh, sending your son to earth, to be Emmanuel, God with us. Because you looked and saw our hopeless state, and despite waging war against you, you had passion and love on us. That you created hope. That we could experience hope for our past, our present, and our future, all wrapped up in you. Father, help us to stop pursuing the gifts that you give us over you, the gift giver. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, thank you for listening to the Redeemer Church podcast. To stay connected to all that God is doing here at Redeemer, visit our website at RedeemerTulsa.org or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Have a blessed week.